Ready? You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from BIV and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Coming up tomorrow, BIV is going to help you navigate business in the United States. Because while America remains Canada's largest trading partner, that partnership, as we know, can be fraught with uncertainty, tension, tariffs, and legal challenges. So on October 2nd, we'll host a panel of experts who can offer insight on navigating that uncertainty. The discussion will examine opportunities in times of geopolitical challenge. It'll also help businesses steer away from difficult straits. Canada's first year of legalized cannabis has seen significant industrial development and investment. We've also seen a range of regulations imposed around consumer outlets, a supply shortage, and a persistent black market that continues to complicate the landscape. So what have we learned? And what lessons can be applied to the next stage of legalization, which is coming up? On October 9th, BIV's Cannabis One Year On panel examines industry opportunities, challenges, and next steps. And on October 17th, we'll celebrate BC's fastest growing companies. Our annual top 100 list is out. The event will be hosted at Audi downtown Vancouver, and it's a chance to meet and network with companies that have shown remarkable growth over the last five years. We're talking about five-digit percentage growth. It's pretty amazing. This is an event you won't want to miss. For details and for tickets for all of our events, visit BIV.com events. We start today's show with a segment that was recorded on Friday. I mentioned that because last week was Rail Safety Week. It has since passed. Although if you take a listen, you'll hear the argument made, which is a fair one, that rail safety really deserves our attention every week of the year. I speak to Sean Finn, Executive Vice President of Corporate Services with CN. Have a listen. My guest today is Sean Finn, Executive Vice President of Corporate Services and Chief Legal Officer with CN. He was in town this week to talk rail safety with the Richmond Chamber of Commerce. We're going to talk about Rail Safety Week today, plus 100 years of CN, as well as what CN will be focusing on in BC over the next number of years. Sean, good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. Haley, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So I know CN's been talking quite a bit about the need to change our train of thought when it comes to rail safety. Tell me what thinking needs to change. Yeah, I think that um, you know, all of us as Canadians have realized that uh, railway safety is clearly a responsibility of the railways to make sure that our tracks, our equipment, and our people operate the railway safely, uh, both because it's important for us as a company. Uh, secondly, you cannot succeed in our industry without being safe. And safety has to be a core value, not just a priority, but clearly a core value. Every day starts, you know, with us focusing on what's going to happen today and how we can be safer. And finally, you know, the purpose of um, of our campaign this week is to reinforce to across Canada and especially, you know, in British Columbia, where we're very present, a lot of track, a lot of crossings, that railway safety is a shared responsibility. The railways must do its part, its part, no doubt, by making sure that our railways are well maintained, are safe at all times. But also, we all have a responsibility as Canadians to keep an eye out. We see people, you know, uh, not being safe around railway tracks. We see kids playing in around railway tracks or railway uh, facilities. We have a responsibility to go out and say something and say, you know, you shouldn't be playing there because, you know, you can't rely. The Send Police, we have about 100 police officers across Canada, but their territories are so big. If somebody's playing on the tracks in Richmond, you know, by the time my police officer gets there from Vancouver, it might take a half an hour, 20 minutes, and we can't afford that because, as you know, uh, trains don't have a schedule. They can show up any time, uh, any direction. So it's important that uh, all 
all of us uh, are aware of the fact that uh, uh, it is a shared responsibility. Now, the railways must do its share, make sure we have safe operations. But uh, the call this week is to everybody in Canada to realize that this is important to us because the number one causes of fatalities and injuries uh, around the railway is tied to uh, crossing accidents. It's not in our yards, it's not on our tracks. It's very much the interaction between uh, the public, cars, or, or pedestrians on our on our trains at railway crossings. It's challenging because anyone who's been to a railway crossing, they're clearly marked. There are signs there. If there's a whistle cessation program, that's clearly marked so people are aware. What can you do beyond raising awareness? It seems like a difficult thing to try and tackle, especially if the companies on railroads are doing their part. Well, I think that you know it's a question of information and and communication, but also a certain amount of education. And I think you know we do a program with Operation Lifesaver, where we'll go to schools, especially schools that are close to a a railway line or railway facility. We'll go every three years, if not every two years in some cases, and and uh, have um, a sent police officer or a retiree talk to the kids in the school about railway safety, uh, and the message to them, and they get it real quick, is stop at a crossing, look at a crossing, and then listen at a crossing before you engage. Uh, and, you know, that line goes into then stop, look, and live, which is important. So I think uh, education with uh, with uh, young Canadians, kids in, from grade schools to the end of high school. And then our next target is also, you know, the biggest uh, uh, number of fatalities is young men between the age of 18 and, and 30. So those are their, our target audience. So get to them, it's a bit more difficult because in the university or in the workplace, that's one area. And I think just talking to municipalities and, and communities across Canada, you know, we're in uh, 1,400 communities across Canada. We engage as much as we can with uh, elected officials at all levels, be it, uh, be it provincial, federal, but also very much locally, the mayor and city councils and the CEOs of every town in Canada where we carry on business, trying to have a, a direct relationship with them. And we talk about railway safety. And it comes down to, you know, um, when we say we talk about it, you just it's really safety is very important. It's a core value. But you have to be safe and not just talk about safety. I think being safe is raising the awareness. So, you know, it's not a one week of the year. It's throughout the year. But we make an effort to try and make sure that, you know, all of our 26,000 employees uh, obviously come to work every day and have a safe mindset uh, as a core value, but also talk about it. That's, not, that's what this week is about, about having a chance to sit down uh, with people from across Canada, either directly, but also for the last month, we've had cities uh, pass resolutions for Railway Safety Week. We've also had almost 1,500 of what we call our railroaders in the community, which are people who do volunteer work, either active employees or retired employees, to talk to the organizations where they do volunteer work, you know, soccer team, uh, hockey team, in the dressing room. Take five minutes. We have a very short uh, piece of, very short little card that has uh, 10 tips. And just talk to the kids about, you know, why it's important uh, to make sure around and we're safe around railway installations and crossings. And also, you know, you know, if you're on a board of a non-for-profit, we have that the same relevant community talk to start to me by saying, can we spend a few more talking about railway safety? So it's raising awareness, but having people talk about it because, you know, it's not looking at signs that gets there. It's when you stop and say, you do realize that it takes, you know, almost two kilometers to stop a freight train. Uh, you know, it also haven't realized that they're very quiet. You, know, you think a freight train makes a lot of noise at 30 miles an hour coming at you with the wind in the opposite direction. You won't hear the train coming. Mm. Uh, the trespassing is an issue. So I think, you know, these simple tips uh, and the more we talk about it to our friends and families, I think the more we'll raise awareness. If we just save, you know, one life uh, by doing this, that's, that's a, a great achievement.
It's very important to talk about, as you put it. And one other thing that people have been talking about this year, including CN, is 100 years. You're celebrating your 100-year anniversary, which is significant. Reflecting on the last century, what would you say are some of the most significant milestones that CN has seen? Yeah, on June 6th, uh, 1919 was the date that the federal government brought together 12 bankrupt railways. We're not celebrating 100 years of bankruptcy, we're celebrating 100 years of theft. <laughs> uh, during those 100 years, uh, you know, 75 of which we were a government owned crown corporation, 25 of which we were a privatized company. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, to answer your question, it's, it's 100 years of recognizing CN's contribution to our communities and our society. Uh, we take it for granted, you know, people stop at a crossing uh, like they should. They stop, they look and they listen, but then they watch a train go by. And, you know, often we have fellow Canadians that get a bit um, uh, annoyed by the fact you have two locomotives and you have, you know, 150 cars behind it. And I guess, uh, you know, we talk about 100 years, is having people realize that those two locomotives, they belong to CN. The two employees work for us, but the cars behind don't, we don't own them. And, and one thing for sure, the content is not ours. So, you know, 100 years of moving Canada's economy, uh, you know, we move $250 billion of goods per year on network. So that's our challenge. To answer your question is that, you know, we have been uh, a key part of our country for 100 years now. We have, uh, we moved Canada's economy to market. And, uh, you know, I look back on that and say there's a, you know, a lot of, a lot of history in the railway, but a lot of retirees. We have 42,000 retirees, 26,000 active employees. We have more retirees. So it's also about celebrating their contribution to this great company. And I think that's you know, the people that make the difference at CN. Uh, we have the same equipment as other railways, the same locomotive, the same size of track uh, as any other railway in North America. But what makes a difference are, is our employees and our people. So we're trying to celebrate that. But raising the awareness, again, to Canadians realizing that, you know, we play an integral part, uh, play a very important role in moving Canada's economy to market. And, and you know, if um, if farmers in Western Canada can get their goods to the Port of Vancouver to be ex exported to markets, the railway has to play a role in that. It's it amazing. Has a role in that. Yeah, it's an amazing time because you can point and click and order almost anything you want in the world, anywhere you are, and it can show up at your door two days later or a couple of weeks later. But it's important, I think, to think about how those goods actually get to consumers. And there's massive networks behind doing just that. We can't deliver a good to your house in 24 hours, but you have to realize that it gets to the Amazon warehouse or to the entire store or elsewhere you buy your goods. It often comes by container overseas. And, you know, it comes to the port of uh, Vancouver, the port of Prince Rupert on the BC West Coast. And I often explain to people that both the port of uh, Vancouver, the port of uh, Prince Rupert are not the ports of BC, they're ports of Western Canada, because we don't realize how much goods come through those ports. But also, you know, in the case of Vancouver and Prince Rupert, serve all the North American continents. So these are important gateways. And I think that Vancouver and British Columbia play a key role uh, in making sure, to your point, that people order goods and get to their house in 24 hours. They came through those gateways in a container, then on a CN train to a warehouse somewhere in Canada. The end user may not see it, but of course, in these big networks, there's a lot of room to be efficient, to be innovative, and it maybe results in shorter amounts of time to get a product or things like that. In what ways is CN continuing to innovate 100 years on? Yeah, I would say to you, you know, that, that the more we talk about supply chain, you know, we realize that, you know, for, uh, for products to get to Canada, it comes by ship, 
goes through a terminal in Rupert or Vancouver, gets on a train, hopefully uh, very quickly from those terminals, gets to a destination, you know, somewhere in the GTHA or in Montreal or in Memphis, uh, goes into a rail yard, a truck picks it up, brings it to a warehouse, it's then put in a warehouse, and then, you know, once ordered, gets delivered by truck. So the whole notion of supply chain and how we do a better job in tracking uh, these these uh, these goods across the network and also making people realize you know that we're only as strong as our weakest link so anybody in that link that drops the ball sometimes it could be the railway sometimes it's somebody else it's crucial to us to react quickly so the more we can monitor using technology how the supply chains are performing uh, and therefore you know correct any 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 delays or inefficiencies quickly improves our competitiveness as a country and also uh, you know our approach is using Rupert and Vancouver as a gateway to North America so it's important that the, the supply chains we work well together and secondly those gateways are, are crucial to us and you know tracking tracking containers is uh, is important to us as you might know today every morning if a container dwells either in Rupert or Vancouver more than 48 hours uh, at CN people get a notification saying there's that one container you know in Rupert or uh, uh, in uh, in, uh, in Vancouver that's been there for 48 hours and why is it not moving? So that's your question. Very important to uh, the supply chain, but how do we use technology to improve that supply chain and then correct very quickly any efficiencies that come up? Because it's crucial to us to make sure that the gateways that we use, Rupert and Vancouver, are as, are as efficient as can be. If not, you know, as you know well, the overseas shipping companies have choices, and they'll put, they'll pick a port that can do can be very efficient. And I must say, in the case of Vancouver and Rupert, those are two great ports on the east coast, on the west coast of Canada. On the topic of supply chain, when we last spoke, which was a while ago now, you said that going into 2018, CN recognized it had some capacity constraints in the Western Canadian trade corridor. 10% of CN's $3.4 billion capital spend that year was committed to projects in BC. What has the company been focusing on in the last year and a half, two years in the province of British Columbia? Yeah, we should take a step back, first of all, though. I think there was a recognition on our part uh, you know, in 2017, that we were not serving uh, our customers at the level they deserved, and we announced a, a major capital investment, uh, and it was uh, 3.5 billion in 2018, uh, 3.9 billion in 2019. That's 7.4 billion dollars invested in our network in two years. That represents, in a given year, 25% of our gross revenues go back into the network. More importantly, in Western Canada, and I'll come back to BC. You know, improving the corridor between Edmonton and Winnipeg, which was you know which was constrained, we have invested eight hundred million dollars in two years. You know, to make that corridor more effective by you know by creating longer sidings and some places some double tracking, so that creates capacity. Same thing between Edmonton and Prince Rupert. In the last two years, we've invested almost uh, a bit more than three hundred million dollars just in BC. Uh, so six hundred million dollars in a two-year period. Uh, almost seven and can be rounded up up to 345 uh, in, in 2019. And that is used to improve capacity, to also make sure the railway is safe. So very committed to uh, to uh, and reinvest the capital. Had two major years of large capital investment. It might it might uh, normalize in 2020, but we're watching it very closely because, you know, the capacity between Rupert and Edmonton and Vancouver and Edmonton is a crucial, but you can't stop there because these goods are going farther east or going south. So that's why I wanted to step back and look at the overall capex. But uh, you know, capital in BC is very much based on either either capital to maintain and ensure our railway is safe, but also capital improvements in the port of Vancouver, the corridor which is there, and improvements between Prince Rupert and Edmonton to make sure we have fluidity going uh, going towards Edmonton from Rupert. 
Is it possible at all to start planning for the next hundred years of operations? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, as we went across Canada with the, we had a container village at the PNE, you might have seen it, we were there for uh, six days. We have uh, six containers that go across Canada as we celebrate the 100th anniversary in various uh, village communities. And one, each container has a theme. One is the people of CN, the history of CN, which is a view master of, uh, of a decade uh, times 10 years, so, to, so it's 100 years. We have the scenery of CN, there's the safety, and there's one called the future of CN. And I must say that was a most challenging container to put together because when you talk to a railroader and you say, you know, talk about the future, what will, what will a future locomotive, car, or container look like? They often say, you know, to me, Sean, the future is today. Like, we're moving cars today. Don't talk to me about the next hundred years. So we forced ourselves to think outside the box. And in that container, we had the kids go in and uh, using a hologram, they could develop a locomotive, a car, or a, uh, a, a container. They would be sent it onto a glass, a glass container case they could look at or by email. And just that fact of having, you know, using technology, but also having, you know, kids think about the future. So to answer your question, we think we have a very bright future. And we will be here for the next hundred years. Uh, I think there'll be a, a reason for railways to continue to move goods, no doubt, across Canada and North America. But our challenge is to make sure that we innovate throughout, that we don't lose uh, don't lose our our focus on making sure that we think forward with our customers. And I think that's your question. It is a challenge to think hundred years out, but you know at least think five to ten years out how we're going to change as a company, uh, how our workforce will change, how uh, our supply chains are they going to change, the flow will change, and how can CN quickly adapt? There's one major difference I think between CN. Today, a privatized company versus a former crown corporation is our capacity and the speed with which we can adapt to envir- the environment changing around us. And that's important to remain nimble enough, even though you're a very large company, to be able to react quickly to the changes in the marketplace. Absolutely. I imagine if there are some bright young Canadian minds drawing the future of trains, were there any flying trains? I have to think that that's where some people <laughs> yeah. went. There were there were a couple <laughs> of hovering over the tracks when yeah. you looked at it, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know I think that you know our technology is 100 years old. Uh, we're always improving it, but uh, you know it comes to the basic uh, track, the rail, the ties. Uh, locomotives and cars, it hasn't changed that much. Obviously, the size of the technology and locomotives have, but uh, no longer have steam locomotives. But you can expect, I'm assuming, the next 100 years that uh, that technology will change and improve even more so we become more efficient. Sean, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Kelly, it's great to be back, and I wish you and your um, your audience uh, a great uh, great uh, year, and that I uh, hope you have a chance to see CN and celebrate with us, uh, especially on social media. Our hundred anniversary, and thanks all Canadians for being so supportive of our business. Perfect. Thank you very much. That's Sean Finn, Executive Vice President of Corporate Services and Chief Legal Officer with CN. All right, we're back to Tuesday, October 1st with BIV's weekly tech panel. In studio with me, Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. Good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market. Good to have you on the show. Thank you, Haley. WeWork has given us weeks and weeks and weeks of content, and I've seen it put like this. WeWork is we done. The company pulled its IPO filing. Of course, last week we learned that the CEO would be stepping down still with some control over the company. Linda, how bad is the situation now for WeWork? I think, in fact, it's it's good. Newman's gone. Uh, the two guys who were effectively running the company with him are now at the helm. 
One of them looks really good to Wall Street, less ties to Adam Newman. Um, they have some money. They've pulled the IPO. They plan on going public next year. Uh, they're, they're not a technology company firmly. I say that firmly in my opinion, um, but they do have a good uh, business model and they've got a competitor that's profitable and a sector that could grow quite significantly. I don't think it'll ever scale like a technology company will, and they shouldn't be valued at 50 billion, much less 10. Uh, their competitors are uh, bill or uh, valued around for what 3.8 billion. But I think that it's an interesting segment that that will continue. So if they can just pull this the reins in on the ridiculous overhype that SoftBank has allowed the market to run away with, and get it back to uh, a more reasonable business, there's a long term play here. So I think this is good. It's like the crazy talk is over. Let's actually get down to the business that that can make us some money and turn a profit because by the way, they're running out of cash, $6 billion of cash is going to be burned between now uh, in the middle of next year. So unless they get money and build a story people are going to write checks against, uh, it's over. But I don't think it's over. I think they're just scale back to reality, people. What do you think that reality looks like, Owen? What's maybe the WeWork of the future, a realistic version of WeWork and not this hyped up, exciting company we've been talking about? Yeah. So like being valued as a tech company, actually, that is the weird part. SoftBank is, uh, they're so smart. So being part of the SoftBank world is amazing. Um, and so it's so strange that SoftBank even made the investment. Um, it's kind of like the Beyond Meat thing where it's like, we had veggie burgers and now it's a little bit better. And it's all of a sudden <laughs> opening up all these doors. Uh, my wife is a vegetarian, so she mentioned that. I thought that was really funny because, uh, yeah, they're basically like an office rental uh, company, and somehow they were like tied in with technology. I, I think they hit a market trend where everyone was working, or not everyone. People are starting to work more remotely, and there's more jobs in you know uh, remote spaces, and we're more souped up with uh, you know Slack and everything to be able to work remotely. I think that's probably where that angle kind of fit in with technology. But yeah, they didn't deserve the huge multipliers, and um, it kind of it, it actually really annoys me that they did this angle because there's so many people vying for SoftBank's money and for like true VC tech money, and uh, and to squander it like this is uh, it's yeah it's pretty sad for all the companies out there that are just you know have great products and and need some cash to get going. Well, and what took it to the crazy place? The the real thing that drove it there was SoftBank was Myoshi's son saying, "Yeah, we're going to throw 16 billion at this." Okay. We'll scale that back to eleven billion. This is the future Alibaba of our port of our of our portfolio. Um, so he's making all of these hyping claims, and where money goes, money follows. Right? It's like, all right, if this is going to work, it could be a good IPO. Let's see what happens. But so he also allows a founder with outrageous control over a company, uh, horrible governance, a board of directors that should be ashamed of themselves, um, attempting to walk into a public market where there are expectations. Um, put on companies to deliver shareholder value. And none of that was in place. So either they went to market too soon, um, or they weren't ready, or um, SoftBank and Newman together just created this sort of messiah complex of aren't we great? Isn't this amazing? The hype's working. And they all got carried away and everybody bought along with it. So it's remarkable to me how quickly they came back to reality. Because last week, I was thinking this was going to be a drawn out mm uber style drawn out scenario of trying to get the ceo out but it yeah. ended quite quickly and, and it's to where it could be coming back in re into reality 
um, it could be like an Uber scenario where you get the, uh, someone to like have a ridiculous growth at all costs type of mentality. And then you get it everywhere. You kind of push the market forward and then the CEO is, uh, displaced. And then you have someone like, um, the CEO of Uber, who's, you know, like trusted by Wall Street, knows governance, knows how to be politically correct. Uh, and then they actually turn it into a legit company, go profitable. They don't have the crazy growth, but they actually turn it into a, a great company. That's, that's actually an interesting model where you have like a crazy founding, uh, you know, leadership. You go all over the place, disrupt everything, and then basically you almost die. And then out of the ashes, uh, you know, the phoenix rises and then it actually changes the market. Yeah, there is a positive angle there, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. I like the comparisons to Uber because we're going to be talking about that on the show too. the growth at all costs, though. It makes sense for, say, an Uber that's trying to do so many different things or an Amazon that's really disrupting our lives in so many ways. Does it work for WeWork where it's pretty specifically one thing? Well, growth in WeWork's world means signing into long term leases and really expensive buildings all around the world. That's that's a big high cost to pay, especially when the people uh, bringing in your revenue can leave on a moment's notice. So that that isn't a great growth strategy. And you're you're kidding out these places with ridiculous amounts of um, uh, the infrastructure, the design, the beer on tap, the kombucha, whenever you want it. And so this is an expensive, obviously not viable business model, right? They're losing money. So they're subsidizing these crazy spaces. So the growth at all cost in a technology world means we're we're placing our money into investments that, that are going to scale. Something's going to hit. Like we're going to get this right at some point. Um, but I don't see the growth here other than just spending more money to grow that side of your balance sheet. Yeah, the totally right. The cash crunch on the physical investment and the reinvestment over and over again, it really it doesn't deserve the multiplier that tech companies get because to have a new user on your platform might cost you fractions of a penny. Uh, but you know, for uh, WeWork, it's it's the building costs and, and all that. I think they still have a lot to pay too because they've expanded a lot but haven't really furnished a lot of air, new areas and things like that. Yeah, and a company that uses technology to, to create its business isn't a company that is a technology company, right? Like right. we got to actually develop technology that can scale. Isn't that what right. tech companies are supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. But even if we talk up a big hype and talk about us being a technology company, we use iPads to check our people in. We have, we use Slack, we have internal communications that are tech, et cetera. That's not making you a tech company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime I go somewhere, we have to check it on an iPad. It feels so futuristic. You know, the (laughs) tech is pretty old by this point, but you don't see it enough everywhere that it still feels like a new thing. Yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. I like it. Wait for the robots to do that for you. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna. That's too much for me to handle. I think I'll just walk out the door. Let's skip ahead to our Uber topic, just because that came up in our discussion. Uh, CEO of Uber says he wants the company to be the operating system of our everyday lives, and this comes on the heels of more than two dozen announcements of small things they're doing, new areas they're branching out into, new investments. Owen, do you think Uber has the capacity to potentially be the OS of our everyday lives? Yeah, I, I think they do. I didn't actually realize how much Uber did until <laughs> reading through this article because, you know, we're in the dark ages here with uh, Uber. But um, yeah, it, they do all this amazing stuff. Um, and I, I think it's kind of, um, 
you know, kind of throwing paint at the wall and see what sticks. Is that the expression? Mm. I always screw up these expressions, but something uh, at the wall anyway. Yeah, something. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, they have like you know the backing. They they have the revenue uh, to continue to fund these uh, projects, and you know some of them are going to take off. There's going to be lots of synergy. I like you know even what they do just with the safety uh, mechanisms mm. in the Uber ride, where you can you know quickly uh, you know you can send your ride to you know a loved one or something to make sure they know where you're at. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure like, uh, mad, like mothers against drunk driving loves Uber, uh, you know, to get rid of drunk drivers on the road. Mm -hmm. And there's so many positive things, uh, to Uber. Um, I really hope they actually make it the technology wise, speaking about scaling, they do have that technological angle, obviously. Um, it is a two sided marketplace, which are very expensive to run. Uh, you have to generate interest on both sides. You have to be, you know, marketing into local markets. Um, so, uh, but you know, they've achieved that already and they know the game plan to deploy. So yeah, I think they can just keep going. I'd love to see them be more like uh, Amazon, you know, uh, offering a bunch of stuff because, um, I think their corporate culture, uh, because they've been reprimanded so heavily is going in the right direction. It seems so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they've, um, this was an important speech. We've got the IPO down 30 percent from uh, the sorry the stock price down 30 percent from ipo pricing the shareholders that were forced to pool and hold on to the stock are allowed to start selling in early november um, so this announcement comes in time hopefully i guess they're trying to keep those people to hold on to their shares um, and it was I, I agree with you and there was a lot of interesting tech behind this announcement and they've moved away from this we're the amazon of transportation to we're the os of your city life so it's maybe a bit of a better pitch um, but that what they're not doing is addressing the needs of their contractors or their not their employees, their contractors, whoever you want to, however you want to think about that. They're also not addressing the issues that Uber has in terms of congesting the cities we're in. We're, we were in climate change week, right? People were exciting and walking on the streets last week to uh, to protest the inactivity of us getting our climate change house in order. And here's Uber um, piling congestion into our cities, um, making it very difficult for uh, people to use transit. Like transit numbers are dropping in places where Uber and Lyft exist, right? Because Ubers are somewhat easier to take. So I didn't see them moving anywhere in that direction. They're poking the bear of transit saying, yeah, we've got transit on our app and that's all integrated into the app. Sort of similar to what Cater is attempting to do in a small way. Um, but do they have a future? Absolutely, they've got a future. I think there's a lot of stuff thrown at the wall. Um, most of it's going to stick, but not not any of the things that I wanted to hear them say, that we're really going to transform how we move around our cities. Adding cars isn't going to do that. Yeah, I think uh, Dana, the CEO, uh, mentioned that, you know, they have a lot of hybrids. Uh, so, <laughs> But it's kind of like the, uh, actually, Elon Musk was saying that too about their uh, Tesla's like, uh, autonomous driving, it's actually not going to take cars off the road because then people are more likely to drive. Well, and we know that's what they're waiting for, right? Okay, we've got to get rid of these drivers. When can the autonomous cars hit the road? How many cars is that going to be on the road? I get that the autonomous cars can park three kilometers away or 10 stories underground or whatever, right? right? They're just going to pick us up out front of the theater. Uh, we don't care where the cars park, but but that's not going to solve the problem. We need more we work so we can just work from... <laughs> we live, we work, <laughs> we exist all in one we, we never leave. Yeah. We never leave. We. Well, Uber CEO also said something interesting because of the comparison to Amazon. He said that ride sharing to them is what books were to Amazon. What do you think of that idea? 
is rideshare here to stay or is it a bit of an entry into a much bigger transportation and mobility? Well, that's play? a problem for him because ride sharing is not profitable. Right. And right. books were. Right. Right. Maybe not hugely profitable, but profitable enough. Right. Uh, and and ride sharing is subsidized by basically VC and, pro- and public money right now. So that's not profitable. I think the first billion dollars came from that. Where's the second billion going to come from? And I think most people are agreeing, including Coast for Shahi is saying it's going to be data. So what they're doing in of being the app, being the OS of our everyday lives is collecting data on every aspect of our mm-hmm. lives. And that is very valuable data. They paid a $150, million fine for its their, their God view and their, um, their security issues. So the FTC fined them. They paid the money. They're now under a 20-year requirement to disclose their data policies. They have a security um, uh, C-suite a um, person who's going to take care of the security of this data. But Khosrow uh, Shahi is very clear, data is where they're going. And so when we accept an OS into our life, what are we saying? What company is coming into our life to see where we move, where we live, where we work, what we're eating, um, who we're riding with, our reviews on these rides? I mean, it's, a, it's an immense amount of data. They promise not to sell it, but they will be using it to push ads and data information onto our screens to help us make better decisions, quote unquote, about what we're going <laughs> to eat, where we're going to drive. Do we want to stay at that hotel, et cetera? So it's a creepy mix uh, from a company that doesn't have a great security data track record. So beware of the OS that runs your life. We want You want to be able to trust that. And I'm, I'm personally not going to let Uber do that. I'm not super pumped about Uber doing that. Which Super Pumped is a great book, by the way, oh, yeah, about the culture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, read it. It's yeah. good. Yeah, I, you know, I just I feel bad because the every interview I see with him is just people just slamming away. I think they're still trying to get at uh, oh, that uh, the the founder CEO guy. Melanic. Um, yeah, and so um, I guess that's why I'm sort of uh, optimistic about their. Uh, perspective just because I feel like they've been land-based so much but yeah it's it's true it's, and, and like any company as we've always talked about uh, it's you know it's a big concern about privacy and are they mature enough to house this very very valuable information about us and where we want to go it's also pretty cool though that they are basically single-handedly creating this this uh, shadow kitchen world where all of these virtual oh, yeah. kitchens are happening mm-hmm. these amazing chefs are saying why am I hassling with the front of house I can just have a virtual kitchen somewhere else and create amazing food and Uber eats it, Grubhub it to the world. And that I think is pretty cool. And and that is really transforming a how much we cook at home. Probably not a lot if you're under 30. Um, transforming the way our houses look because a lot of people are saying, I don't, what is this big thing in my kitchen it's an oven why would i ever I need that <laughs> so so just how we eat like something as fundamental as how we eat is is quite fascinating and uber has uh really driven that i've had a few of our old people our olds um say i think i need that uber app so i can get food delivered to me so it's so it, the brand is permeating all right, the yeah. way through to those people and i i downloaded the app in a in a class and in a talk and a bunch of the old people put it on their app and they were blown away blown away by what uber eats looks like so it was a really fun look at actually how transformative that app is we're all cynical and we probably used it a lot and it's all (laughs) old school now but for them it was like what the world comes to my door yeah so this online uh, online to offline transition 
is what Uber is really making mainstream, which I think is really amazing. Yeah, that's really a neat point about the shadow kitchens too. Um, uh, so our office is in Chinatown and uh, we have a lot of pop-up uh, places, chefs that want to you know, strike out on their own and, and the rent is cheap. Um, but um, actually, I remember going to one of those secret uh secret kitchens uh, you know like illegal kitchens or whatever the food actually wasn't that good but the experience was really fun uh you know you go into some person's apartment and they have it all decked out um and it was a well-known chef because uh they just they wanted to try a different type of cuisine and they were restricted at work so i guess that is a kind of a cool opportunity for uh chefs yeah yeah so uber may be looking at this online offline transition facebook looks like it's trying to blend together the two with some big virtual reality plays which one of you wants to help me understand horizon and what facebook's trying to do with this yeah, so i it's funny because uh, the i think the big one was the control labs purchase Absolutely. okay uh, let's start with that so i've been interested in that for a while um there's like um, anyone who goes into goes deep on these technical, um, you know, uh, forecasting for the future, they always come up with the keyboard and our thumbs are really restrictive. Um, you know, we need some way to interact with uh, computers better, and and the voice has been kind of starting to pick up steam there, but it's still really clunky. Um, and so the BCI brain computer interface is is the term for somehow getting our thoughts into uh, input for the computer. And so control it. So I've been following this. Uh, one big advancement was Elon Musk started uh, Neuralace technology, where you know they implant uh, on on top of your skull or sorry on top of your brain, but they, it is uh, invasive. They have to do it through your skull. Mm. Um, IBM has been doing this for a long time. Whenever someone gets, uh, you know, if they're detecting uh, a seizure location, uh, you can opt into some research programs where they can also uh, look at your brain and, and try to get high, uh, high, um, uh, high resolution uh, mapping of, of your thoughts. Cause you know, we really don't know how it works. It's very complex how thoughts actually work in the brain. Um, yeah. So anyways, long story short, uh, this control labs was really interesting because of course, don't don't uh, don't open up the skull. You can just do it from the nerves that extend, you know, out your spine, uh, and then you can uh, start to map it from there. I was really interested how far they got with control apps, just with a little bracelet, uh, to be able to pick up uh, these sensors, and now coupling it with machine learning, which machine learning is fantastic at signal processing, and this, this is all signal, uh, then they can start to map it into intention. And apparently they can go really far. They can start to feel your, they can start to know your intention and, and all these sympathetic nerve systems where before you even act, you're actually preparing, you know, your muscular tissue for something. Right. And they can start to map that. And then, sorry to keep going, but the, uh, the really interesting one is just how like we all maybe speak and to learn how to type because it's not natural for us to do that and then all of a sudden we start to map words and then we can quickly type because we have all this automated um, processes learned uh, same for this type of thing but it could go so much further so we can start to get really complex type of signals even though it's just our arm we can actually start to do really complex thoughts with our how we use our muscles um, so I, the fact that facebook bought control labs and it's going to just shovel cash at it is really exciting. Uh, there's been a few other companies that have done it, but they've been shelved by either Google or uh, Intel. You know, these companies, they, they just buy something up, they have a bad quarter, and they, like, cut it all. Mm. And they hold the patents, which is very annoying. Uh, but hopefully Facebook will keep going at it because that can, um, not only people with disabilities and, and that type of world, but just the general productivity of the world. If we can stop typing on our thumbs, which is so, and you'll autocorrect, 
you know, because we're not supposed to be using our thumbs to like <laughs> communicate. Um, if we can get beyond that, then that could unlock a huge amount of, uh, of productivity. Yeah, and Zuckerberg was really excited about it. Um, back at the beginning of the summer, he was talking to Harvard. And at the end of his speech at Harvard, he started uh, doing a Q&A with the kids there and then started veering into this, yeah, we want Facebook to be your thought control world. We want you to be on Facebook and just be thinking about what you want to do on Facebook. Um, not actually being you know, at your keyboard or at a screen, but this will be an immersive technology. So having Control Labs uh, technology start to blend with this uh, Horizon concept, right? Now we're talking right. about uh, Horizon bringing in a gaming style environment, super crude graphics. Nobody has legs there because that saves on the graphic <laughs> requirements. So we're all floating around in Horizon, interacting with avatars, um, starting to create a social environment within these gaming environments. So that's our... Facebook's really smart move to take how are we going to get people into VR in the first place? You know, we're not all going to wear, obviously, those dorky headsets, uh, but eventually those headsets are going to just be reflected on our glasses and this we don't need keyboards and the control labs technology is going to move in to augment our bodies to be able to react with these environments. So it is a it is a scary thought that Zuckerberg is the person leading this charge and he's doing it well and they've got the cash reserves to make it happen. He's also got the audience that is really comfortable uh, gaming. They're comfortable immersing in an online world, even if the graphics aren't great. So it's an interesting test to see the next phase where what does cyberspace look like actually? How are we going to move beyond this internet web thing into something more and be completely immersed in this world? So it's a long view and he's good at, a long, at the long view. He's got the money to carry it off. Um, he's not the only person thinking long. Um, Miyoshi son at SoftBank's thinking long too. His 300 year vision for an augmented AI world um, is an interesting read. But it, the horizon's a, a toe in the water, and I think you're totally right. Control Labs really helps you see the Mark Zuckerberg of the future, and, yeah. and I, I'm I'm horrified. <laughs> Not only will they be able to track what we're writing and what we're posting and how we're interacting with their content, but eventually, not an exaggeration to say they'll be able to track our thoughts. Yeah, it goes all the way. Although, so the only other um, group that's done progress in this has been DARPA for uh, prosthetics with the uh, U.S. Army and the veterans. And so there's there's the U.S. military and then you got Facebook. And yeah, so maybe there'll be, hopefully there'll be more competition in the future. I, I mean, our, I don't think you can trademark or patent, you know, human nerve situations, but, or maybe you can, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. But the, the brain augmentation is fascinating yeah i mean is it is really it's the way we're all going to be it's augmentation is going to be standard fare right yeah i think yeah. that people look back at at the entire uh so many people billions of people right now on keyboards you know typing away and they're going to think that's just the horse and carriage type of thing um <laughs> I hope. <laughs> well, and 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 realizing that our screens don't have to be something we hold, right? Well, we talked about that on the folding phone episode, and it's like, why am I even holding my phone? But it's it's such a waste of my time to hold my phone when this can be on my screen. I can be crudely maybe dictating. Eventually, I'll just be thinking the things I want to type, um, and that is not far away. Like that sounds like science fiction, yeah. But it is. It's now technology. 
And you can see that this will open up a whole can of worms when it comes to privacy and data, who we are. Do we own our thoughts? Who has mm. access to them? Do we want to make them public? Are they automatically public? Well, that's exactly it. You're now in, in Facebook's whatever horizon is going to be called in the future. Um, but in Facebook's world, it's exactly right. What are your thoughts when that ad is zipping past you? What are your thoughts when you're looking at that person? I mean, th this is literally them being able to capture the data on our thoughts when you're in their environment. So I, I don't even know what to say to that. It's, it's Yeah, it's, there has to be competition. That would be a really important piece to mm -hmm. this because uh, Facebook uh, got away with what it got away with because it was so dominant. Um, and so I think, yeah, that would be a really smart move is to make sure that there's competitors in the space. I, I'd imagine it's going to be very expensive uh, to build an online world and to, you know, invite all the developers to participate in it. So maybe some forced standardization so you can also have the Google world, you know, and right. other competitors. Uh, otherwise, we'll be, yeah, it could be a black hole where we all get sucked into it. Well, we're going to be talking definitely about what's happening in Horizon. Like you're you're going to have a moderator who can walk you through the space, but they're not going to be moderating everything you do in that space. So it'll be fascinating to see how, like, what does a Russian troll look like in Horizon, for instance? <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, probably I'm guessing if I were a Russian troll, I would have blonde hair and I would look very American if I was going to create that avatar. But but it's going to be interesting to see what these avatars do with each other, because this will be our first big experiment in how we coexist in a virtual world. Right. right yeah. And and I'm, I think we're going to be talking about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, just imagine, I mean, if you get billions of people signing up to this, which I think might be you'll get early adopters and people interested. It might be a bit of a challenge because of the privacy concerns to get a lot of people who feel a bit scorned by Facebook on it. But they have a snapshot into the minds of billions of people, potentially. What are their politics? What are they thinking about issues X, Y, Z? It's pretty let's, amazing. Let's do a pretend vote and get everybody. Who's, right. I mean, think about the future of that social environment. Yeah. It's, and then again, it's bringing in our sense of sight and our sense of thought and our, yeah. our feelings. And it's it goes so far beyond what Facebook is now. Facebook now, as we describe it, seems kind of clunky, doesn't it? Yeah. The scariest way thing is it can go two-way because um, you can have a reader for nerves. And then once you had a mapping system, you could go the other way where you could think th you could implant thoughts and you know that's obviously getting into some science fiction novels but um it's not that far off from having uh you know wherever you can have an output you can have an input um and so you could have some sort of ads you know like implanted in your brain or something but anyways let's not talk about that now that's too scary yeah we got 10 or 20 <laughs> years to go with that we can we can reach out scary. there with the control labs bracelet and and feel like we're touching things in a virtual environment wow. which right. is going to be pretty cool. You're right. I am thinking back to pieces of flair and hot or not and how crude Facebook 1.0 yeah. and how pointless it seemed at the time. And that's been 15 years, yeah. a 15 year test. It's pretty right? amazing. And this tech yeah. is rapidly uh, improving. So I think five, 10, 15 years from now, yeah. look out world. Yes. And I mean, there is something to appreciate there with the cavalier nature of, uh, of Facebook uh, pushing it forward. Um, there are worse actors in the world for this. Um, so They're also doing it. Yes, they're also trying to do it. <laughs> so yeah. we need somebody, like you say, we don't want these locked up in patents and going nowhere. That's so right, Facebook's yeah. going to be the company that makes everybody go, okay, people, the race is on. That's good. Right. We need, like you say, lots of competition, yeah. lots of companies in the space to drive it forward, to create something that we all, we all can use confidently and securely. Right, yeah. 
That's more of a positive note, so we'll end it there as opposed to this dark, what's going to happen 20 years under AI rule. Linda, Owen, as always, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming. That was great fun. Thank you very much. That's Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market, and Linda Focus, CEO at Glue Technology Society. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also listen to all of our episodes at BIV.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. 